President of the House, members, distinguished guests, Ukdaraina, Tina Hana, the Herga Sebuil, Estiana Erica. May I thank you, President Silures, for your invitation and indeed for the warmth of your words and your welcome to myself and my wife Sabina and all of those traveling with me. It was indeed a pleasure when you visited Ireland in January earlier this year, when we in Ireland were marking a hundred years of the establishment of the Irish Parliament in Doilere. I also want to express my thanks for the warm welcome you have accorded to the representative of the Irish government accompanying me, Minister for Justice and Equality, Charles Flanagan, who has been working very closely with your government on the functional review of the court system in Cyprus, an example of the cooperation which I hope will expand and deepen. It is a very great honour to have been invited to address this House as part of my state visit to Cyprus. As a parliamentarian for many decades, I'm acutely conscious of the vitally important role played by the institutions of our representative democracies, the importance of parliaments, obviously in the struggle for democratic representation, but particularly as we now continue to live through challenging times dealing with new multiple interacting crises, democratic, humanitarian, and ecological. After my meeting with President Anastasiades earlier this week, I spoke of our island of Cyprus, two islands at either end of the European continent, are two countries with a physical distance between them of some 3,800 kilometers, but with an emotional and cultural distance between us as island nations that never, and indeed today, does not feel very great at all. We both, I think Ireland and Cyprus, have had to struggle for our independence over the centuries. We both, too, have had to cope with the challenges associated with post-colonial nation-building. And we both, in more recent times, have shared the consequences of the 2008 recession, which impacted so severely on our people. At the press conference after my meeting, with President Anastasiades on Monday, I spoke of my deep concerns, President of Ireland, at what is happening in northern Syria and the unilateral intervention by Turkey in that area with its consequences. Today, allow me to reiterate here my call on Turkey to seek an alternative negotiated approach, one that rejects and ends military intervention with its awful result in humanitarian distress and an approach that rejects the coercion of forced returns of refugees is so necessary now. I also discussed with President Anastasiades my concern in relation, if you like, to the provocation indeed that the recent arrival of drilling and prospecting offshore constitutes today. I again reiterate Ireland's view that matters of the maritime and activities at sea should be undertaken within the framework of international law, and that any disagreement on these matters should be settled through the negotiations undertaken in that legal context. Dear friends, again thanks for the warmth of your welcome, both President and Government and people of Cyprus. This has been my first visit to Cyprus, although I have long held a particular 
interest in your unique history, an island at the crossroads of three continents and even far more civilizations, an island which has had many visitors, welcome and unwelcome, over the centuries. So the historical parallels between Ireland and Cyprus are undeniable. In this, in Cyprus, the quest for a knowledge that is not only rational but beautiful and thus fulfilling is something which finds its source here in the Eastern Mediterranean, the cradle of European civilization. And Cyprus occupies an important role, for example, in Greek mythology, being the birthplace of Aphrodite and Adonis, and home to King Zenras, Chusan, and Pygmalion. The Serbian contribution to the arts and culture has been of such significance. The art history of Cyprus can be said to stretch back to 10,000 years, while Cypriot literary works, including epic poetry, such as that of the Cypria, one of the very first specimens of Greek and European poetry, composed in the late 7th century BC and attributed as it is to Stasinus. Ireland, too, has historically been the space of considerable scholarship, providing internationally recognized contributions to arts and culture. With a contribution, I think that is always valued, indeed privileged, a strong sense of connectedness to the outside world. But in, pre in recent times, our two islands have found many areas of fruitful cooperation. And indeed, Speaker, I do say, I hope we can find many more and that we can deepen all of these, all of which I hope would be such a happy consequence of my state visit, be it in culture and tourism, law and business, food and environment, to our developing relations in the marine and maritime sector, and a shared commitment in relation to responding to the consequences of climate change and the tasks of achieving sustainability. This afternoon, I will be in Larnaca to meet with the members of the, the Cyprus Marine and Maritime Institute, a new institute for Cyprus, which will be helped and modeled, I hope, on the Irish Marine Institute, which is located in my home county of Galway on the western coast of Ireland. It should be no surprise to anybody that we're doing this, for we are both that we are both forging maritime links again, given our shared history as seafaring nations. Throughout the classical period, when Cyprus was under the control of the Persian Empire, around the 5th century BC, Cyprus was part of the Persian Empire's fifth satrapy and was linked with Phoenicia and Syria. And like the Phoenicians, the Cypriots were recognized as expert sailors and as some accounts suggest better. On Monday of this week, at the beginning of my visit, when I was pleased to meet with President Anastasiades to discuss current issues of concern <coughs> for both Ireland and Cyprus, I think it is to say, all of my meetings are ones which cause me to express again and again my thanks for the kind hospitality, wealth, and how much we share. Cyprus and Ireland, I have said in recent times, have also suffered, both of us, the impact of the global financial crisis, and in the case of both of our peoples, emergence from those difficult times is largely to be attributed to the resilience of our people, who have endured much hardship as a result of the economic downturn associated with what has been called the Great Recession, 
which lasted five years in my own country, and the effects of which still manifest themselves in our society and economy. It is clear now that as a direct result of the blunt impositions and handling of the crisis, not only in our two countries but across the Union, social cohesion has been significantly damaged. And this is a consequence in its contribution to an atmosphere that has contributed to a facilitation of the rise of Euroscepticism, exclusionary forms of neo-nationalism, and austerity sourced neo-populism, nativism, reactions that are built on negative invocations of fear and ignorance, including a fear and ignorance that is invoked and manipulated and directed often to scapegoat, to scapegoat the stranger, the other. Ireland and Cyprus are both committed members of the European Union, supporters of a social Europe. Ireland was so proud to hold the presidency of the European Union in 2004, when Cyprus joined along with nine other countries in the historic enlargement of the Union. In May this year, we marked 15 years since the day of welcomes, long authority when the scars of Europe's Cold War divisions were finally healed. And while our peoples may be then at the fringes of Europe, we are both now at the heart of the European discourse, and we must be at the heart of the conversation on the future of Europe. Our respective national experiences afford us a unique perspectives on the Union and enable us to make incisive and informed contributions beyond any narrow interest regarding the possible futures of the European Union. From countries with small populations can come the best invocations of values and solidarity as envisaged in the best of the treaties. Ireland and Cyprus share a commitment to the essential values of the European Union, respect for the rule of law, protection of human rights, and also the principle of equality within and between member states. This last point is so very important to member states like ours with smaller populations. We also share the challenges and perspectives that come with being two geographically peripheral states with small open economies. This state visit of Ireland to Cyprus is occurring, I know, at a moment of particular significance for the European Union. Multiple significances, in fact. Our union is a community of rules, encompassing law, economy, and society. But it also, perhaps equally importantly, a community of values. And it is clear, however, that these values are not being upheld uniformly and sufficiently across our member states. This is surely a great concern for us all, for democracy itself, and for all of those who believe in, have hoped for, have worked for social cohesion, human rights, and equality. End of poverty. At a time when a new fear-driven populism and simplistic solutions to complex multifaceted problems, such as the migration crisis, are being presented to our peoples, we must not let our citizens succumb to the politics of division, fear, and blame. We must offer alternative models of inclusion, innovation, and a deepening sense of democracy. Our peoples deserve a version of their independence and shared sovereignty that is principled and based on values. 
And as the United Kingdom leaves the European Union, the government and people of Ireland are grateful for the solidarity and understanding shown by other European Union member states regarding the unique implications for Ireland. Since the decision of the United Kingdom, public by referendum to leave the European Union, Ireland's objective above all has been to protect the hard-won gains of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which established a peace process that, despite some setbacks, has resulted in a period of normalisation in Northern Ireland over the past two decades. The potential creation of any hard border on our island could put this hard-won progress at risk. We know that you and Cyprus understand the value of our peace process and the importance of coming to terms with the legacy of a painful past. On this state visit to Cyprus, I was saddened to witness the physical manifestations of the ongoing partition of the island. The mayor of Nicosia welcomed me yesterday to the new municipal building in the old city. And while there I had the opportunity to see this physical division and its impact on the city of Nicosia, and like all friends of Cyprus and the Cypriot people, I sincerely hope that Cyprus can be reunited at peace and with full reconciliation between all of the communities on this island. In Ireland, we learned over a very many long and painful years of the cost of division and partition. One of our great peacemakers, John Hume, has often said that peace is not so much about uniting pieces of land. It is about uniting peoples. In this regard, I acknowledge the important role that civil society can play in peace building and in providing solutions to deal with the intercultural challenges that can and with goodwill be transcended as the prospects of a shared future are encouraged, envisioned, and anticipated. The challenge of building a reconciled society after war and conflict is enormous. It is a challenge that resonates strongly with the Irish people. As President of Ireland in recent years, I have sought to share a discourse on what the concept of ethical remembering might yield for us. It is a theme to which I return as President of Ireland in several addresses. How should we set about publicly commemorating seminal events in a nation's history? Events that in their carrying multiple and competing versions could be divisive. A central division of what I call ethical remembering has been a rejection of any kind of conscious or unconscious collective amnesia. Indeed, to reject important and painful events of the past, to deny those affected by them any recognition of their losses and memories would not only be counterproductive, it may even be, I suggest, be immoral. Setting about ethical remembering requires being open to a scholarship that can both widen the lens of our understanding to include the broader political and intellectual context in which events have unfolded and refine our people's grasp of the complexity and texture of a tumultuous period by drawing attention to the detail of individual experiences, including in particular those of the marginalised the cost winter, as we would say in the Irish language. The time has come for what Irish scholar Richard Kearney is among those who have called an ethics of narrative hospitality that might replace our past entrenchments. I believe it is an exercise that yields the greatest results on my own island, 
on this island possibly, and across the continent of Europe. Let us together cultivate memory as a tool for the living and as a secure base for the future, removing the capacity of past tragedies to deprive us of either peaceful present or an imaginative future. Since our independence, both of our countries, to our great credit of our governments of different kinds, have supported multilateralism, its institutions and the rule of law. In Ireland, we have a long tradition of support for and engagement with the United Nations. We are very proud of the fact that Ireland is the only member with an unbroken record of service to the peacekeeping missions of the United Nations since our very first participation in 1958. This commitment, as you have said, Speaker, found expression here in Cyprus, when from the earliest days of the United Nations mission in Cyprus in 1964, the Irish Defence Forces played a significant role. And over the years, almost 10,000 Irish soldiers have served to the United Nations peacekeeping force in Cyprus. Today, that traditional support for the mission continues with the presence of 12 members of the Irish Police Service on Garda Shikona, serving here at present. And I was so pleased to, to meet with them on Monday and to thank them for the work that they do here, representing not just Ireland, but the United Nations. As a nation which has known divisions and tension too, Ireland is well equipped to understand the complexities of the circumstances here in Cyprus. I am proud of the work carried out by the Irish women and men who have served here and of the genuine bond they have helped to create between our two peoples. Yesterday, I paid a visit to the Committee on Missing Persons, where I learned of the devastating impact that the question of the missing continues to have and the efforts of the Commission did start to heal this wound and support bereaved families. I do so want to commend their work and hope that it will be possible for them to eventually bring some measure of peace to all those who have suffered the added pain and loss of the remains of their loved ones continuing to be lost or unidentified. The professionalism, compassion, cooperation was so impressive as was the invaluable experience and training being given to young forensic scientists who will, I have no doubt, go on to make a valuable contribution that will be not only regional but global. As small countries, both Ireland and Cyprus, not only value those international multilateral rule-based systems that I've spoken of that emerged from the great wars of the 20th century, but we both work within these. We are active participants in the multilateral institutions. Just three weeks ago, I had the honour to attend the United Nations General Assembly and deliver Ireland's national statement to the United Nations leaders. I use this address to highlight the need for urgent action to tackle the multiple crises of our time that require multilateral engagement, ecological, economic, humanitarian and democratic. And during my time in New York at the UN, I was delighted that Ireland had co-hosted with Fiji the important summit on small island developing states that focused on reviewing progress on the Samoa Accelerated Modalities of Action pathway. Small islands, as we all understand only too well, are inherently vulnerable. This vulnerability has left island communities and low-lying coastal communities open to not only the forces of nature and the damage of climate change, 
but often in consideration of strategic location that ignored their peoples. It has left them open to the ravages of expansionist, acquisitive, and adventurist empires. Today, the shared island experience is happening within a context of a financialized global economy with its specific pressures, ecological threats that are now perilous from climate change and its consequences damaging our ecosystem, which are largely sourced in what is described as developed countries. In facing these new challenges, I believe that a shared concerted determined strategy within the multilateral institutions and diplomatic practice is vital and I'm confident that the Samoa pathway will play a significant part in mobilizing investment in climate change mitigation and adaptation measures for small island developing states. But more broadly, a major step up in climate change ambition is now required if we are to have any realistic hope of mitigating the worst effects of global warming, some of which we're already witnessing. The time for debate has long passed. The science has been unequivocal for at least two decades. We require more stringent, globally agreed targets on emissions, of course. But we must also use the tools of environmental taxation, which are based on the polluter pays principle, so as to properly price the use of natural resources, including through carbon pricing, to create the correct incentives so that all of us can play our part in severing our unsustainable reliance on fossil fuels, reducing our carbon footprints, purchasing more sustainable, ethically produced goods, and facilitating investment in a climate-resilient economy. In the history of the United Nations, it has often been the nations with the smallest populations which have been the ones that have performed as partners in advancement of the common good, the needs of humanity that transcend all borders. The United Nations flourishes when such voices are heard, a United Nations that confined the debate, for example, on the moral purpose of its charter and its execution to discussions and decisions of the General Assembly, and then cynically proceeded to ignore those voices of the world, voices that define the very purpose of the United Nations at the Security Council, would quickly and understandably lose credibility in the world for the United Nations. And we must safeguard the United Nations <coughs> from such a fate of impotence or cynicism or undermining. The United Nations General Assembly and its decisions must never be dismissed in favour of the pursuit of the unrestrained and so often threatening interests of the strong. When the United Nations turns its focus to creating a transformative agenda, as it did in 2015 through the Sustainable Development Goals and the 2030 Agenda, Member states such as Ireland and Cyprus are called upon to lead. Principled countries with small populations, such as our two peoples, have the ability to work together to build consensus and support based on identifying the collective good and rising above any narrow priorities based on self-interest or impulses to dominate, control a discourse that must, after all, be a discourse of the many. The wider context in which the United Nations has had to function is one of a trade-driven globalization informed theoretically and in policy terms driven by a hegemonic single model of connection of economy and society and ecology, with development being used as a conduit for the singularity of such a position. 
with, if you like, unregulated, unaccountable, accelerated growth as its driving principle. I've been arguing for the need to exit from this failed paradigm for a scholarship that facilitates, even allows, a new paradigm. It is not simply a matter of putting an ecological or social veneer on what now prevails and which is failing. We have to strive for a new symmetry between ecology, economy, society, and gender. One that respects diversity in all its forms, while sharing a consciousness of what we must do together, cooperatively. Should we choose this path, and I believe it is an urgent matter for us, we will face opposition from those who believe in unregulated hegemony for market forces. If we fail, however, it is to elected representatives that the public will bring their wrath. We simply must have the courage and commitment to address the growing realm of non-accountability by economic forces that know neither borders nor restraints. I believe that quality of life cannot be measured simply in terms of resources, accumulation, and consumption. Instead, we must consider our relationship to our resonance with the world, not as we would wish to use or indeed abuse it, but ask how are we to be taken into that world, how it takes us in, and with what joy or pain. This concept of resonance, articulated so well eloquently by recent scholars like Professor Hartmut Rose of Leipzig, is a concept that the youth of today understand only too well. Young people like Greta Thunberg are spearheading their movement, one rooted on a paradigm shift to an ecological social model. But this has long been advocated too by eminent scholars such as Professor Ian Goff and others in his book, Heat, Greed and Human Need. The widespread adoption of which is not only an important gesture towards intergenerational solidarity, it is our only hope as a global people to avoid ecological and social catastrophe. The prevailing neoliberal model has failed us all and has resulted in increasing inequality and ecological peril. In the time before the advent of our prevailing economic paradigm, I myself had hopes of the emancipatory power of humanistic social science as an academic. I could not have foreseen the influence of the second coming of the ideas of free market theorists in extremists, or the influence that they would have not only on theory, but on public policies that would be privileged in the United Kingdom, the United States, and elsewhere in the 1980s and 90s. Not as policies chosen among competing policies, not as options contested, but as a single hegemonic version of the connection between markets, economy, and society itself. Decades of Keynesianism gave way to decades influenced by the theories in their second coming of those such as Friedrich von Hayek and Milton Friedman, to unrestrained, unregulated market dominance, and a communications order with a discourse that privileged in its turn aggressive individualism, unrestrained accumulation. A prevailing, largely uncontested paradigm then emerged, which has consequences for us all, our institutions, and I suggest even our democracies. Is it a paradigm that makes assumptions and demands regarding the connection between scholarship, politics, economy, and society? Indeed, the interrelationship of societies. 
This paradigm has gained strength and encouraged an individualism without social responsibility within and beyond borders. It not only asserts a rationality for markets, but in policy terms has delivered laissez-faire markets with inadequate regulation and enforcement. Its colonization of language itself, distortion of concepts, even ones once emancipatory, has assisted, for example, in the concept of freedom being redefined in a reductionist manner to market freedom. Humans value that is thus debased and reduced to their economic worth. Consequently, the public world must now become, as it was so often before in human history, a space of intellectual contestation, a space that sets that which is democratic in tension with that which is unaccountable. And as we live through this, through this period, in seeking an exit from extreme individualism, a period where the concept of society itself has been questioned and redefined narrowly and pejoratively, when the public space in so many countries has been commodified, we must come together in parliaments and publics in cooperation and encouraging the merging of the consciousness of ecology, human need, dignity, respect for sources of truth, and consolation reasoned and revealed. We must combine in multiple forms of cooperation for that recovery of the public world, informed by the music of the heart as much as by the partial suggestions of ratio. That is what ancient systems from our earliest civilizations invite us to do, as Cyprus, with its rich and ancient civilization, knows only so well. And it would be remiss of me, finally, not to turn to a, finally to another common feature shared by Ireland and Cyprus, that we are both diasporic peoples, with migration and exile a key feature of our interest in histories and culture. Over the generations, we have often left our island homes, whether by choice or compulsion or exile. Our immigrants went to the same countries as yours, to Britain, the United States, and Australia, among others. And their contribution to their adoptive homes was immense. To illustrate the extent of the Irish experience, by 1901, more Irish people were abroad than were on the island of Ireland, of all those born on the island. Today, Ireland's diaspora is set to number over 70 million. Our nation's history contains many tragic reminders, of course, of the desperate plight of migrants fleeing our own country. It is this relatively recent chapter in our own story as a nation that gives us Irish a resonant empathy with the plight of those forced to leave their home countries, a particular understanding of the challenges faced by those forced to flee their homes due to conflict and war or economic need or dispossession. Europe has for many decades been a leader in championing the rights of refugees and since 2008, has processed approximately six million asylum applications. It is clear, however, that the rise of populist political ideologies that are based on fear, division, and exclusion, with the excluded often being abandoned, become the prey of xenophobes and racists, presents a major threat to European solidarity. And I so agree with the recent words of United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, whom I had the pleasure of hosting in Dublin in June this year, 
Only if Europe is strong and unified with Europeans being able to deal with refugee and migration issues in a principled, practical and effective manner. It is clear to me that if we enable and promote a reciprocal sharing of cultures and ideas, as well as forging multiple symbioses, the cultural diversity that follows will bring with it innovation, opportunity, dynamism and creative energy that will enrich our society. Solving the migration crisis is a complex task and will require substantial foreign aid to the affected countries to promote good governments and the rule of law, improve security and reduce poverty and inequality. I have been for long in favour of a global fund with regional instruments to affect this. Investment in affected regions can mitigate violence, corruption and poverty over the long term, especially when it builds on civil society's groups' existing initiatives. Recent threats to cut off aid to those countries whose governments fail to stem unauthorised migration would achieve the opposite result and make the future status of programmes already in place uncertain. Aid should not just focus on the areas on the areas the status already it should not where people are fleeing. It must be directed at places where people are staying, either voluntarily or involuntarily, and shore up relevant institutions. As I've said, we need a global fund to anticipate, manage and respond to global migration with regional instruments that have the capacity to anticipate and respond. We now require actions that address structures that are the sources of global poverty, conflict and involuntary migration. Actions on climate, migration, cohesion, broader developments, we must do together. We must, in the short term, restore funding for humanitarian purposes, but not regard humanitarian actions any longer as alternative sufficient responses to crises that are political and structural in their origin. Humanitarian action is not a substitute for the crucial political dialogue and mediation that must address structural changes. The structural changes of international debt and economy and trade which must be made. Dear friends, May I thank you once again for the warmth of your welcome today and wish you all well in the important work that you do in this house. I wish you success and satisfaction and good results in your work as parliamentarians and representatives. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. Thank you very much. Now the issue of the President of the